Chapter 11, Part 2 of The Life of Philip Melanchthon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley, Llano County, Texas, USA. The Life of Philip Melanchthon by Carl Friedrich. Letterhose, translated by Gottlob Frederick Hotel, eighteen twenty six to nineteen o seven, chapter eleven, the Diet of Augsburg, part two. At last, on the twentieth of June, the Diet was opened by the celebration of Mass by the Archbishop of Mentz. The papal orator. Pimpinelli made the address. Afterwards, they proceeded to the town hall, where the imperial demands were proclaimed, first against the Turks, then in matters of religion. In reference to the last point, the emperor expressed his regret that the previous imperial resolutions had not been carried out. Nevertheless, the states should express their sentiments in matters of religion in Latin and German declarations. Melanchthon, filled with excessive alarm, believed this important matter might be brought to a favorable conclusion by private efforts. It was not a good plan. However, he adopted it. Among the retainers of the emperor was a secretary named Alphonsus Valdesius. This Spaniard seems to have been a shrewd man. He entered into communication with Melanchthon and revealed his views of the Lutherans as they were regarded in Spain. It was thought there that they did not believe in a God or the Holy Trinity or Christ or Mary, so that the people of Spain thought they could not serve God better than by killing a Lutheran. Melanchthon replied somewhat to the following effect, quote, The Lutheran cause is not so tedious and awkward as it may have been represented to his imperial majesty, and that the principal difficulty was concerning the articles of the two forms in the sacrament of priests and monks, marriage and the mass, because the Lutherans considered solitary masses sinful. If these articles should be conceded, he believed that ways and means might be found to settle all the rest. Soon after he was informed by the imperial secretary that the emperor was pleased to hear this, and had commanded that he should make a very brief statement of the Lutheran articles and deliver it to him. The emperor also believed that it would be most advisable to settle the matter quietly for public trials and quarrelsome disputations were only productive of ill-will and not of unity. Melanchthon expressed himself ready to reflect upon this subject, but neither the elector nor Chancellor Brooke would permit the matter to be disposed of in this way. He was merely permitted to show the confession which, as Melanchthon wrote to Camerarius, the secretary of Waldesius found, quote, entirely too bitter for the opponents to endure it, end quote. 
as they could not and would not take the byway of silence, the emperor suddenly, on the 22nd of June, appointed Friday, June 24th, for the delivery of the evangelical confession. This short time greatly perplexed the Lutherans because Melanchthon still wished to make further corrections, and the introduction also was wanting. In order that this might be in the proper form, Chancellor Brooke assisted him. The theologians, there were twelve present, assembled to deliberate. Nine princes and cities signed the German copy of the confession, and because they had no further time to spare, they took Melanchthon's manuscript as the Latin copy. The 24th of June arrived, but it being too late, the reading of the confession could only take place on the following day, Saturday, June 25th, 1530. This day, which has become one of the most important in the history of the evangelical church, came at last. Spalatin says, quote, One of the greatest deeds ever accomplished in the world has been done this day. Quote. The emperor and his brother Ferdinand, princes and states of the empire, and distinguished ecclesiastics, were there assembled to listen to the reading of the Confession of Faith. The Saxon Chancellor read the German Confession so loudly and distinctly that it was not only heard in the hall, but also in the court, where a great multitude was assembled. It contained two parts, the first including all the doctrines of faith, the other the disputed articles. On account of our limited space, we shall but briefly touch upon the different articles, as every one, especially every Lutheran, should be most intimately acquainted with the confession of his church. We have more need of it at this time than formerly, for the ancient errors arise with renewed vigor and may easily shake one who is uncertain in his belief. First, one, stands the confession of the Holy Trinity, of God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Two, how we become pious and righteous before God. 3. How all men are born with original sin. 4. What original sin is. 5. How we attain God's grace. 6. How preaching is necessary towards justification. 7. How faith must produce good fruits and works. 8 what the general Christian church is. 9. That the sacraments are efficacious, even when administered by wicked priests. 10. Of baptism against the Anabaptists. 11. Of the holy sacrament of the true body and blood of Christ in the sacrament of the altar. 12. Of repentance. 13 that the sacraments are such consoling tokens with which we are assured and may be certain that God, for Christ's sake, will be gracious, kind, and merciful to us, and do us good in time and eternity. 14. Of the teachers of the church. 15. Of ceremonies, 
that those are to be observed for the sake of peace, which can be observed without sin, but they are not to be observed in order to attain salvation. 16. Of human laws and order. 17. That Christ will come at the last day to judge the quick and the dead, to give everlasting life and joy to believers, and to condemn the devil and the wicked. 18. Of free will. That we have a free will to be pious outwardly, but not before God. 19. That sin comes from the perverted will of the devil and wicked men. 20. Of faith and good works. That this is true faith. That we are heartily assured of every good grace and help from God for Christ's sake and that faith without works, such as God has commanded, is dead. And 21. Of the adoration of saints, that we should expect all good from God as the saints did, and that we should imitate their faith and love, but call upon God alone. Then in the second part, follow the disputed articles. First, 22 of the two kinds in sacrament, why we distribute them to all. 23. Of Mass, how it is observed among us, and why we have rejected secret Masses. 24. Of Priests, and the marriage of monks and nuns. 25. Of Cloister Vows. 26. Of Difference of Meats. 27. Of Confession. 28. Of the power of the bishops, and the difference between the spiritual and temporal sword. These 28 articles are discussed in a clear, simple, scriptural, and peaceful manner. No ingenuous mind could withhold its approbation from them. It is impossible to say what impression they made upon the emperor it is well known that he was not very well acquainted with the German language. Besides this, he no doubt had previously also decided upon the course he would take. When the two copies were being handed to his secretary, he graciously took them into his own hands. He gave the German copy to the Archbishop of Mentz, and kept the Latin one for himself, and caused it to be translated into Italian and French for himself. He intimated to the Lutherans that he would consider the matter further, but expected that they would not print the confession. However, their opponents soon circulated defective copies, so that the Lutherans were forced to publish the correct confession. Luther was regularly informed of the progress of events. He indeed was deeply interested, and secretly, by the help of God's hand, ruled the Diet. As Moses prayed, and had his sinking arm supported through the battle between the Israelites and their enemies, so Luther prayed in his castle of Coburg. He who sitteth in the heavens alone knows what influence he exerted. It would have been well for Melanchthon had he possessed such strong faith, and such a mighty spirit of prayer. But he looked too much to men their power and their craftiness.
and for this he was rewarded by complaints and sighs, but he did not conceal his sorrows from his paternal friend in Coburg. Through this, Luther opened the depth and power of his faith, and permitted the flame to spread even to Augsburg, that Melanchthon's heart might be encouraged. His precious letters should be read at length in the history of his own life. Here we can only communicate extracts. June 26th he wrote, quote, I heartily hate your great care, which, as you write, weakens you. That it increases so greatly in your heart is not owing to the greatness of our cause, but it is the fault of our great unbelief. Why do you thus unceasingly trouble yourself? If our cause is wrong, let us recant. But if it is right, why do we make God a liar in such great promises? Because he bids us to be of good cheer and satisfied. You are troubled thus by your philosophy, and not by your theology. The same also greatly vexes our friend Joachim, just as if you could accomplish anything by your useless cares. What more can the devil do than kill us? On the same day, Melanchthon sent a dejected letter to Coburg. Quote, we are here constantly in the greatest trouble, and shed tears continually, which has been aggravated by still greater distress today. When we read Monsieur Viet's letters, in which he informs us that you are so highly displeased with us that you would not even read our letters. My dear father, I do not wish to increase my sorrow by many words, but would only ask you to consider where and in what great danger we now are, having no other comfort but your own encouragement. The sophists and monks are running daily and making every effort to excite the emperor against us. End quote. He prays that Luther would read and answer his letters. On the following day, already June 27th, another letter from the afflicted one followed this. He says, quote, At no time have we stood in greater need of your advice and encouragement than at this time, as we have followed you as our head in the most dangerous cause up to the present time. Therefore, I also pray, for the sake of the honor of the gospel, that you would take our part. Christ permitted himself to be awakened in the vessel when it was in danger. Now truly we are in still greater danger here, in which nothing worse could happen to us all than if you should forsake us. End quote. He also said, quote, I have written to you before that you should inform me if necessary how much we may yield to our adversaries. End quote. On the 29th of June, an answer arrived from Coburg, in which, among other things, we read this, quote, I have received your apology, and I am wondering what you mean, that you desire to know what and how much we may yield to the papists. According to my opinion, too much is already conceded to them in the apology. If they will not accept this, I do not know what I could yield further unless I see their arguments and clearer scripture than I have seen hitherto. 
he expressed himself most decidedly against being called head by Philip, quote, I wish to have no name, wish not to command, and do not wish to be called author. You are troubled about the beginning and end of this matter, because you cannot understand it. But I say so much. If you could understand it, I should not like to have anything to do with the matter, much less would I be a head or beginner. God has said it in a place which you can neither reach by your rhetoric nor by your philosophy. That place is called faith, in which are all things that we cannot see or understand. Whoever wishes to make these things visible, open, and comprehensible, as you do, will get sorrow and weeping for his pains, even as you have against our will. As he was closing the letter, he reflected that Melanchthon might think he had received little in reply to his question, what and how much should be conceded to their opponents. On this account he added, quote, You have not asked sufficiently, and have not clearly stated, what you think they will ask of us. I am ready, as I have always written to you, to yield up everything to them, if they will only leave the gospel free. But whatever opposes the gospel I cannot allow. What other answer can I give? From such an apostolical faith, several other letters flowed to the friends in Augsburg, and particularly to Melanchthon, who truly needed such a mode of address more and more. End of chapter 11, part 2. Recording by Bill Mosley, Llano County, Texas, USA.